0: Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Am I, is this good? Can you hear me? Everybody can hear me out of the sound system? Good? Okay. I'm just looking around the room and I, I notice there are a few folks here that I just want to say a special welcome to. Uh, we have guests this morning visiting us all the way from Saskatchewan. And uh, we just want to say good morning and welcome to you, and uh, we are glad that you are here with us this morning, worshiping the Lord with us. Uh, We come to an interesting text today, just to remind those of you who are joining us for the first time this morning, last week we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, known as Kohelet, written by Solomon, and we began to consider the doctrine of the Word of God. And what we found as we looked at the tail end of the book of Ecclesiastes was that all of life is is vanity. It's all hevel. That's the, the word that Solomon uses. And, and by that, what he means is that all of life is an emptiness, it's a meaninglessness, that there's no there's no fulfillment, there's no satisfaction, that you will go through life feeling that there's something missing. And he concludes the book of Ecclesiastes by making this statement, All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Having a relationship with the father satisfies that itch that that yearning in every heart in every soul and the only way you can satisfy that itch or that yearning the only way you can bring an end to hevel or vanity is by finding wholeness through a relationship with jesus christ we come now this morning to look at the second part of this aspect of the doctrine of the word of god and uh we're going to pick it up in verse 12. The majority of our time is going to be focused on verses 16 to the end of the chapter, but we begin in verse 12 this morning. And as it is my custom, we'll read the text again, we'll pray and ask the, the Spirit to help us, and then we'll get to work. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, or as it says in the New King James, fables. We did not follow cleverly devised myths or fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure or more certain I know that the New King James will translate it more fully confirmed, uh, but I think a better rendering of this adjective in the Greek, we have something more certain, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for speaking to us through Your Word. Father, we thank You for speaking to us through Your Word about Your Word, that we might have confidence and certainty. In our relationship with you Father, there are many today who would cast doubt on what you say. There are many today, Father, who would seek to come between us and you and suggest that what you say is not clear, not certain, not able to be fully understood. Lord there are many today who seek to interfere with our walk with you, the gentle shepherd. I pray, Father, that as we look at this text this morning, that you would remind us once again that you desire to speak to each and every one of us personally, directly, and with absolute certainty through your holy book, the Bible. We thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for this truth that you have given to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would do this work in our hearts this morning by the precious name of Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever played the game of Jenga? It's an interesting game. My daughters absolutely love it. If you're not familiar with it, it essentially consists of a stack of blocks. They're rectangular in shape. You'll have three laid on the bottom on a table, and you'll have three more rectangular cubes sort of laid at a 90-degree angle, so they're kind of facing in opposite directions. And they're stacked like this. It's a stack about this tall. And the object of the game is to not be the person that knocks the stack over you you poke out one block after carefully considering the tower, you take it out and then you put it on the top and then the person next to you, it's their turn to go. And it's sort of like an interesting version of hot potato. We go around the table, everybody taking a turn, knocking out a block and stacking it on top until it becomes so unwieldy, so unbalanced that eventually the last person to touch it, the whole thing falls over. And then of course, that person is out and you go on to the next round and the, next, the remaining players, they continue to play. If you were to research the game of Jenga, you would think that it was invented by Hasbro sometime in the 70s or 80s. I'm not exactly clear. I did some digging this week to try and find out when exactly Jenga started to be mass-produced and played. But Hasbro wasn't the one, they weren't the ones to invent Jenga. In terms of picking and pulling In terms of shifting and adjusting and deciding which cubes or which blocks or which threads we're going to pull on, the truth is that this is a game that we've been playing forever since the dawn of time. And rather than playing it with a simple block or a stack of blocks, we've been playing it with something that we should never have been playing it with to begin with. We've been playing Jenga with the Word of God, and it started in the garden, in which Adam and Eve began a conversation with Satan. And Satan posed the question to Eve, did God really say that? It's a game that we're still playing today. In a recent article, a fairly recent edition of Christianity Today, the feature article was about the emerging church and it included a profile of two rather well-known pastors. You've undoubtedly heard of them, Rob and Kristen Bell. The couple that founded Mars Hill Church is a very popular and large church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. According to the article, the Bells, quote, found themselves increasingly uncomfortable with the church. This is a direct quote. Life in the church had become so small, Kristen says. It had worked for me for a long time, but then it just stopped working. The Bells started questioning their assumptions about the Bible itself, quote, discovering that it was nothing but a human product, as Rob puts it, rather than the product of divine fiat. Quote, the Bible is still in the center for us, Rob says, but it's a different kind of center. We want to embrace mystery rather than conquer it. Kristen says, I grew up thinking that we had figured out the Bible, that we knew what it meant. Now I have no idea what it means. And yet, I feel like life is big again. Like life itself used to be black and white, and now it's in color." That's incredible prose and an interesting way of saying that we can't really know what the Lord is saying. She's not the only one. Brian McLaren, in his uh, book, Generous Orthodoxy, makes the statement, I don't think we've got the Gospel right. I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think we have it right either. In fact, none of us have arrived at orthodoxy. Tony Campolo, who was here just uh, last year, by the way, in Kamloops, We think we have the truth captured, stuffed, and mounted on a wall. But we don't. Tony Campolo goes on to say, Systematic theology is basically an unconscious attempt to have final orthodoxy nailed down, freeze-dried, and shrink-wrapped forever. When Tony Campolo says that systematic theology, the systematic study of the Scriptures is an attempt to understand what the Bible is saying, to nail down the truth, to have it, as he puts it, shrink-wrapped and freeze-dried forever, I freely confess to you, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And it is possible. These guys are suggesting to you that you can't really know with confidence, you can't really know with certainty that you can't really absolutely understand unequivocally what it is that the Bible is saying to you. It's all just shrouded in mystery. It's all ambiguous. It's all fuzzy. It's all hazy. It's all mysterious. The problem is, this game of Jenga that they're playing with the Bible is not a game that our ancient forefathers, the early fathers of the church, played. And it's certainly not a game that the Apostle Peter himself plays. Look with me, verse 16. Peter makes the statement, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. He uses the Greek word there, muthos, it's translated fables in the New King James, myths here in the ESV. It has to do with something that is legend or folklore. It's something in which the origin of the story is uncertain. And his statement is, We didn't follow uncertain legends, we didn't follow uncertain folklore, we didn't listen to myths or fables. The origin of the Christian faith is not uncertain, it is not unknown, and it is not mysterious. And so when these gentlemen today, playing their game of Jenga with the scriptures, suggest that it is mysterious, and that we can't have confidence in in what the Bible is saying, you need to understand that the Apostle Peter is saying the exact opposite with his opening statement. He makes the statement, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to go on to tell about something rather spectacular that happened to him and two others, Peter, James, and John, when they beheld the Lord transfigured into His pre-incarnate glory. The glory that He had when He was with the Father in heaven before He was born in a manger. They go up on this mountain. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 17. Don't flip there, just listen. They go up onto a mountain. Jesus is walking along ahead of them. And suddenly the Scriptures tell us that in the twinkling of an eye, in the flash of a moment, He was transfigured right before their very eyes. It uses incredible language to try and capture the picture. The bottom line is we can't really fully adequately describe what it was that happened, but it was glorious. They make the statement that his clothes shone like the sun, that his face was radiant white, bright white light. And of course, it was so awesome that they fall down in terror. Peter says, this is great. I'll build a tent here. He was joined by two others, Moses and Elijah, Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about His impending death and ultimate resurrection. And Peter says, I'll make three tents here. I'll make one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. This is great, Lord, that we are here. And God the Father speaks from heaven and He says, this is My beloved Son to whom you would do well to pay attention. And the voice of God from on high was so powerful that they quaked with fear. And when they looked up, Jesus was back to His normal self. I say normal self, but that's not the normal Jesus. The true Jesus is not the Jesus that the apostles saw day to day following Him around Galilee. The true Jesus, the normal Jesus, is the glorious Jesus. The true Jesus is the radiant and magnificent Jesus. Peter says we saw it. He makes the statement, if you look, verse 17, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. G- Peter is making the statement. As he's writing to these churches throughout Asia Minor, what is present-day Turkey, he's saying, listen, I want you to understand something. With regards to our Christian faith, with regards to our relationship with God the Father above, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, we need to remember something. We need to understand something. This is not a myth. This is not a legend. This happened. We saw it. Peter is saying, I saw it. I am an eyewitness, and no matter what anybody says, this is not fiction, this is not myth, I saw it, it happened. It's fascinating that God, in revealing His truth to us, through His Word, would lay out the undeniable and unmistakable truths of Scripture alongside historical events, such that if you could research and verify the historical events, it would add credence to the Scripture such that the two are intertwined. To verify one is to verify the other. If you're to undermine one, you have to undermine the other. And that's what we find scholars today doing. Well, the Bible can't be true, but the historical facts are undeniable. Well, then let us question the historical facts. Well, you dig down into the history, you begin to do some archaeology, you begin to tour around the city of Jerusalem, the land of Israel, we find that the historical facts are pretty much impossible to get rid of. Well, if we can't undo the historical facts, if these guys really lived and really observed this Jesus, and if they really followed him, and if they were perfectly prepared to die as martyrs for their faith, then it can only lead to one inescapable conclusion. They may be crazy people, but they were absolutely convinced of what they saw. And it was so powerful and so moving that they were fully prepared to die for it. Which means that they're not lying to us. And now all of us are confronted by the truth of God's Word. The truth of Christ. We find as we look at this, what some theologians like to call inerrancy or infallibility. We find that whatever the Bible asserts, whatever it says, God has structured it in such a way that it is without error. That's what we mean by the term inerrant. And that's exactly what Peter is alluding to here. He is saying, listen, I saw this with my own two eyes. I'm a witness to it. This isn't myth. This is fact. Look at the very next verse. Look at what he says in verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain. Sometimes in churches, uh, we have missionaries, guest speakers who like to come and speak, and they give us a report on their missionary activity from whatever country that they're from, that they're working in. And those are sweet, wonderful times. I always enjoy hearing missionaries come and talk about the foreign country in which they're serving. I like to hear about the culture. I like to hear about their struggles as they try to share the gospel and share the word. I love that. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, if I could have any guest speaker, any guest speaker, which guest speaker would we have? Uh, And you can choose anyone from the Bible, aside from Jesus, of course. Would you choose Moses? Come tell you what it was like to see the Red Sea parted? Would you choose Paul? How many times, Paul, did you get stoned telling the Gospel? Would you ask for Peter to be present? I've always thought it would be wonderful to have Peter come and speak to us because the simple fact is the man gives me hope for myself. Quick to speak, slow to listen, which is the exact opposite of what James chapter 1 tells us. And yet he had a passion for Christ. And he followed Him anywhere. And I would think to myself, if Peter could come and speak to us, If he could stand here this morning, I would be satisfied to hear him tell any story he wanted to tell. He wouldn't necessarily have to tell us about the time that Jesus fed the 5,000. He wouldn't necessarily have to tell us about the time that he raised Lazarus from the dead. I would be content for Peter just to sit here on a Sunday morning and just share with us what life might have been like sitting around the campfire in the evening time with Jesus. What kinds of first century Jerusalem knock-knock jokes did you guys tell? You know, what, what was it like divvying up all the chores around camp amongst all 12 of you guys? Well, what, what, how did you decide that? I would be enthralled just to listen to the man speak. And here's what I find from Second Peter. If we could have Peter standing here, sharing a testimony with us, do you know what he would say? He would say, brothers and sisters, as much as I would love to tell you, About our first century Jerusalem knock knock jokes. As funny as they are, we have something better. If Peter were here, Peter would say, Let's not spend our time listening to me tell silly things about first century life in Jerusalem. We have something better that we can turn to, we have the Bible. We have the Word of God. That's exactly what he says. Look, verse 19. We have something more certain from Bebaios. Now, the New King James renders it, the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. That is not, in my opinion, the best rendering. In this particular instance, I'm going to go with the English Standard Version, the ESV. The exact word order, Bebaios, comes before propheton logon, the prophetic word. And it's an adjective describing propheton logon, the prophetic word what this word "bibios" means. It means something that is certain. It means something that is in force. It means something that is reliable. Now, he combines it with an adjective and he says, I was there. I saw it. I saw it with my own two eyes. This is a fact. It happened. It's not fiction. But even beyond my own eyewitness testimony, the Word of God is more reliable Than even what I would say to you based upon my own eyewitness testimony. It is more certain. And if you stop to think about it, we know that this is true. How many of you watch the weather on the news in the evening time? Now, let me just ask you this question Do you really think that the weatherman is intentionally trying to deceive you about 75% of the time? You know he's never right. Bless his heart, he tries. He's just never right. Now, when we engage in conversation, when we talk to each other, oftentimes we don't have the full-blown intention of lying to each other, of willfully deceiving each other. There's no intentional, deliberate, ill will. Sometimes we're just mistaken. It happens all the time. It can happen as a result of a number of different variables. It can be that we're misinformed, that somebody told us something that at its source was inaccurate, and when it was told to us, we believed it, and therefore we repeated it, and so we started off with bad information. It could be be that we do have ill will, that we are trying to deceive each other. It could also just be that there were circumstances beyond our control, such as we made the commitment to meet each other for coffee at, say, 1030 over at Tim Hortons, And we got up and we got in our car and then there was a snowfall and there was bad traffic and events conspired in such a way that even though I made the commitment to meet you at 10.30, I don't show up until 10.45. I didn't deceive you. I wasn't having a heart of ill will. I gave you the facts as best as I understood them. I gave you the truth as best as I knew it. But there were simple variables that transpired that made my Word null and void. Jesus, Peter, is saying to us, the word of God is not like that at all. The word of God is not like the word of a man. The word of God is certain because of the one who speaks it. He goes on, he makes the statement, the word of God is bibios. it is more certain than my own eyewitness testimony. And he makes this statement to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, I... I don't have time to pick this text apart in its entirety. You're just going to have to trust me on this one. When it says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, that's a reference to the return of Jesus Christ when He comes back in glory. So in effect, what Peter is saying here is that you should pay attention to the Bible, even though He Himself is an eyewitness. You should pay attention to the Bible more than Him as an eyewitness, and you should pay attention to it until the end of time, when Christ returns. And he uses, this is not a metaphor, this is a simile. Metaphors are indirect analogies, similes are direct analogies. He makes the statement, pay attention to the prophetic word as you would to a lamp shining in a dark place. Number one, we understand that the word of God is totally inerrant, totally infallible, It is completely true. It has nothing in common with the word of man. It is the word of God. It is completely accurate, number one. Number two, we pay attention to it the same way that we pay attention to a flashlight in a dark closet. That's the description that Peter uses. And this is where we are directly confronting those who would play the game of Jenga with Scripture. They're looking at the stack of blocks. That is God's Word. And they're pondering to themselves, which of these blocks can we really understand? Which of these truths contained in this book can we really know and have confidence that we know? How do we know that we know? The response that Peter would give would be something along the lines of this. When you're in a dark closet do you know that it is dark? And when you flip on the light switch, do you know that it is light? To suggest that we cannot understand the Word of God, to suggest that it is beyond our comprehension, is a subtle blasphemy of the Father who spoke it. And we know this to be the truth. How many of us, when we're talking to each other, And we begin to sense that the person that is listening to us can't hear us or can't understand us. How many of us do we not automatically, intuitively, without stopping to think about it, raise our voices, speak a little louder, speak a little slower? Who ever bothered to talk to somebody if they didn't want that person to hear them? Who among us ever just sits around muttering in the corner like some crazy old man regardless of who's in the room listening to it. None of us. When any of us take the time to speak to each other, when any of us take the time to converse or have a dialogue with each other, we do so with the unambiguous, clear intention that the other person would be capable of hearing us and understanding us. If you were to come into church on a Sunday morning and you were to say, Pastor Joshua, I notice you have a wedding band on your wedding finger. Are you married? If I were to say to you, hmm, I'm not too sure you would think I was out of my mind (laughs) you're chuckling and that's a good thing it's humorous isn't it suppose my wife comes to me and says ah honey here I am I've got a matching wedding band I say oh that's true that's true Shanti but I just don't remember with perfect clarity all of the details of our wedding day. And therefore, I question the historicity or the truthfulness of the event in itself. What if I were to say that to her? I would probably be the end of my marriage. And yet, is this not what many of us are saying about the Word of God? Do we forget that there is a real father on the other end of that word who really spoke it to us? My wife has a very simple response to my assertion that we're probably not married because I can't recall with absolute clarity the events of our wedding day. She could just say, you know, kind of take my chin in her hands and force force me to look at her and say, I'm standing right here. Maybe you don't remember the events of that wedding day. And maybe now I'm tempted to forget myself. But, could you not just have asked me? We're not talking about a history textbook, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about the Word of the living God. That's what we're talking about. Modern day Jenga players who like to play with God's Word, be it Rob and Kristen Bell, Tony Campolo, and all the rest. They're overlooking the fact that the doctrine of the perspicuity of God's Word, that's an old word that you probably aren't familiar with, the clarity of God's Word, the ability to understand God's Word, the ability to hear it and to receive it, the doctrine of the clarity or the perspicuity of Scripture is something that Peter lays down right here In 2 Peter chapter 1. And it was talked about by the early church fathers. I'll just give you two. Irenaeus, he's a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. He makes this statement in his book against heresies. These things fall plainly under our observation. And they are clearly and unambiguously in express terms set forth in the sacred scriptures for all time. Period. He goes on, the entire Scriptures, the prophets, and the Gospels can be clearly, unambiguously, and harmoniously understood by all mankind, though not all men believe them. Augustine. I spent three hours looking for this quote. I hope you like it as much as I do. I I was looking through Confessions, trying to find it. It's not in Confessions. It's in Tractates of the Gospel of John. I took four hours to figure that out. Listen to what he says here. Regarding the Scriptures. Why were they spoken if not but to be known? Why did they sound forth if not but to be heard? Why were they heard if not but to be understood? This is a conversation that I'm having and I'm sure some of you are having as well. At least probably once a month, I sit down to coffee with some young person usually, but not, not just young people, middle-aged, older people as well, who say, how do we really know that this is what the Bible is saying? One recent experience that I had, I was having coffee Starbucks up at Chapters not too long ago, and a fellow was struggling with all of the confusion that exists in our world today concerning gender roles between men and women. Apparently all of the men now are wanting to become women and the women are wanting to become men and everybody's getting sex changes and all of this sort of thing. It's the latest fad. One Hollywood celebrity made the statement, it doesn't matter so much who you go to bed with so much as you know who it is that you're going to bed as. As if that made any sense. And so this gentleman is saying to me, can we really know with absolute certainty that there are differences between men and women. That was his question. And I tried my very best not to be too cheeky, and I resisted the temptation to say, dude, look in a mirror. There clearly is a difference. I knew that if I said, just look in the mirror, that wouldn't satisfy him. So I gave him 14, more than a dozen, 14 passages of Scripture Not one verse pulled out of context. We're talking block quotes in a written email that I sent to him delineating the differences between men and women. Again, as if it weren't obvious. When he writes back, well, he writes back, there are biblical scholars and theologians of goodwill, excellent character, and brilliant minds who disagree on this question. Why? Because it's really not as straightforward as you would like to think, Pastor Joshua. We have to be humble about what we really can know from the Word of God. The invoking of that all-sacred word, humility. As though... We can't read a simple passage like Genesis 1 or 2 in which the Bible says male and female, He created them. And we can't have any confidence or any certainty in something as simple as that. But we have to hold even the most basic elements of our Christian faith in ultimate suspense without being confident that we know what the Bible is really saying. Brothers and sisters, the Bible uses the word humility and what you find is that that is not the way that the Father uses the word humility. Humility, biblically defined, is when a man is unsure of himself but completely sure of God and what he is saying in his word. And So the modern movement to get us to question our faith And God starts with what Satan first proposed in the garden many, many years ago. Did God really say that? I stand before you here today. Peter says, yes, he did. And we can know it. Time is getting away from us this morning. So I will conclude by sharing this final thought with you. There are other things I wanted to say, but I'm not going to have time to say them. I grew up in Texas. Most of you are aware of that. And I came of age at a time in which Southern Baptists were fighting tooth and nail, trying to understand whether or not we really could understand the Scriptures. You may have heard of it. It's referred to often as the conservative resurgence it wasn't something that was often reported in mainstream media, although it did spill out into the public arena from time to time. This struggle for our understanding of whether or not we could understand the Bible was fought all through the 90s while I was just a kid in high school. And, me- and myself and many of my friends, we came of age at a time in which this was just an absolute horrendous struggle within the church and many of us ignorantly not aware that these things were being argued and fought about and discussed many of us ignorantly took our first positions in leadership in churches totally oblivious to the fact that this was going on there's a man that i know he started off as a youth pastor at a church in inner city dallas and he walked in full of hopes and dreams to minister to the Lord's people, to share the truth of the gospel from God's word, to try and be a blessing to people. In inner city Dallas, you had a neighborhood that was overrun by students, teenagers, who were largely involved with gangs. They came from what we call latchkey homes, single Family, single parent homes in which there was oftentimes no father, and many times the mom had to work three or four jobs just to put food on the table, so she was largely not home. And you have teenagers growing up completely without any adult supervision, and they're missing the structure and the love and the blessing of a family, and they're looking for it and they're finding it in gangs. So this youth pastor goes into inner city Dallas and he begins to preach the gospel. And the thing with being involved in a gang, these are real criminals, ladies and gentlemen. It's a hardened outfit. To become a member in the gang, you have to be witnessed, observed, committing some form of crime, whether theft or worse. And the rule is, once you're in, there's no leaving. And if you leave, they make every effort to kill you, whether it be in the form of a drive-by shooting or worse. It's a fear tactic. Once you're in the gang, you stay in the gang and the gang leaders profit from your continued larceny and various other nefarious events. This youth pastor goes into inner city Dallas and begins to preach the gospel. Whereas your gang brothers and gang sisters will often use you and let you down, Jesus will never fail you. Whereas your gang will use you for the profit and the income you can bring in, Jesus loves you and He died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. Whereas you will be lied to and manipulated by the members of your gang, you need to understand that Jesus will never lie to you and everything He says is completely true. This young youth pastor found himself in a church totally oblivious to the fact that the senior pastor in this church did not believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility and the certainty of God's Word. Yeah, these gang members coming in on the promise that there is a Jesus, that there is a God who loves them, who wants to be true to them. And then they hear it preached from the pulpit. The Bible is, and this is the term, it is truth, T-R-U-T-H, but it is not true. It's a wonderful collection of stories and fables and myths, and it will speak to your heart, but you can't trust it concretely. And of course, he's the one to help you see which parts you can understand and which parts you can't understand. You have gang members coming into a church being told that Jesus can be trusted. And then you have the senior pastor from the pulpit saying, no, he really can't. And a youth minister who didn't even understand what was going on Something that he had always taken for granted, he just assumed that everybody believed this, caught in them. Eventually it became contentious, and that youth pastor was fired, he was dismissed. The reasons given were differences of theology with the senior pastor. And many of those teenagers from inner city Dallas walked away from the church and never came back. But one did. Her name was Nicole. She wrote a letter to this fellow I know. Initially she fell out of the church. She got pregnant with a fellow who was in her grade 11 algebra class. He abandoned her. Eventually she had to take her child and put her child up for adoption, put her child out for adoption. She struggled with a life of drugs and alcohol. She went through a horrible time. When speaking to her, I said, well, there's a God that loves you that wants to help you. To which she laughed and said, yeah, I've heard that before. There wasn't much that I could do. But a few years ago, I received this email. I won't read it to you In full. She basically recounts her life experiences and the difficulties that she experienced and the fact that she had people telling her that she couldn't trust Jesus. That she couldn't trust the Bible. She got her life squared away. She met a Christian man. They got married. She's back involved in church. She's writing this email. She recounts some of her struggles and she makes the statement, there were many days in which I looked at that Bible which my youth pastor gave me. And I thought about getting rid of it. Because every time I would see it sitting there on my shelf, I felt guilty. And one day I stopped and began to ask myself, why do I feel guilty just looking at a Bible? Something changed in my heart in that moment. I thought to myself, well, better to, be, better to feel guilty with the Word of God at hand than to, find myself, than to find myself desperate with the Word nowhere to be found. She goes on to say, I would have been so blessed to have had a pastor who told me the truth about God's truth. It might have kept me from making many of the mistakes that I have made over the years, but after what has happened to me, I know without a doubt and with total peace and certainty that though pastors may come and go, the Word of God is always with me. In Second Thessalonians, Paul makes the statement that people are dying and going to hell because, quote, they have refused to love the truth and so be saved. Loving the truth is at the center of our faith. Jesus says, I am the truth. On his way to be crucified, in the hours leading up to it, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus replied to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And I say the same thing to you guys today. Some of us are sitting here and we're thinking, I wish that Christ would speak to us. I wish that I could just hear His voice. If He could just speak to me, it would be enough for me. And what you're going to find on Judgment Day, when you stand before the Lord, he will reassure you and he will say, has my word sat before you for so long and you still didn't know me? If you want to hear Christ speak, as long as you have a Bible in your hand, Jesus is always by your side. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, its clarity in our lives. Lord, we thank you that we can know it with absolute certainty and confidence. Father, we pray, God, today that if there are any here who are tempted to question or doubt what it is that you say, that you would open their eyes to see that you speak and that your words need to be received. Father, if there are any here today who are struggling in their relationship with you, God, we pray that you would help them to know that you are right there at their side that your word stands ready to meet their every need, satisfy their every longing, that you, God, through your word, desire a personal relationship. Father, if there are any here today who do not know you and who have not trusted in what you sent your son to do for them on the cross, we pray, God, that you'd open their eyes to see their need for forgiveness and reconciliation and to place their hope in Christ. We pray, Father, your spirit would work among us today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.